Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Chase Cannon, and I'm joined today by Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's Benefits Compliance team, and we are here on this podcast to break down some of the issues relating to the Republican effort to repeal and replace the ACA. Today, Suzanne, we're going to do a quick review of where we are with the Senate's repeal and replace effort. We talked a little bit about that on our last podcast. That's the Better Care Reconciliation Act, or BCRA. And uh, we're going to take a little bit, uh, see what the latest is on that. And then we're going to do a deeper dive into a big part of the debate relating to the individual market, and that's called the Invisible Risk Sharing Program that was introduced by the House's version of Repeal and Replace, or the AHCA. Well, let's start uh, out by um, asking you, Suzanne, to give us a little bit of an update on what's happening with the Senate's attempt at Repeal and Replace. Right. As you know, the Senate chose not to bring the BCRA, the Better Care Reconciliation Act, to the floor for a vote prior to the July 4th recess. And um, part of the reason they wanted to get it done so quickly was because they were concerned about congressmen going back to their to their constituents and hearing negative um, feedback and then coming back and not being in support of the bill. And truly, we are starting to see some of the support unravel a bit more. Part of it is Ted Cruz has offered an amendment that would allow carriers to introduce kind of a barebone plan into um, the marketplace. His idea is that by allowing carriers to offer um, a low-cost plan that has low coverage, then you're going to make it more accessible to some of those individuals who not, may not be attracted into the market otherwise. The problem is that now these plans can introduce medical underwriting, which is rating based on an individual's health condition, and they also will not be subject to the ACA or their mandates, so um, will not be subject to essential health benefits, community rating, etc. So because of that, you're going to lose some of the moderates. Um, some of the other opposition that you hear about this plan is when you do, when you kind of bifurcate the market in this way and you have individuals that will be attracted to this bare bone plans, what remains in the richer plans are those individuals who need that coverage. So it's individuals who are generally uh, sicker. And what happens then is you have kind of a downward spiral of uh, premium cost. And by downward spiral, I mean actually that premiums are going up um, because you're only left with those sicker people in that in the richer plans. Um, but what we're seeing is, you know, it's interesting because we, we certainly are seeing some senators jump on to Cruz's bus. Uh, Senator Mike Lee and a few others are saying that they think Cruz's approach is the best approach. Um, and we have seen Senator McConnell submit it to the CBO for analysis. But then you're also hearing many, many moderates say that it makes it dead in the water. There's no way that they would agree to that amendment. And so what happens next? Part of it could depend on the outcome of the CBO's analysis. What we have right now is significant negative um, opinion of any of the Republicans' repeal and replace efforts. If the CBO's review is favorable and it shows that there's greater access and lower premiums, you may find more of the public getting on board. Um, but until we see more public support or you see some of those factions coming together in the Republican Party, I really don't see a path forward for the BCRA. Um, it would really be rare for Congress to support legislation that the public is clearly not in favor of. Right. And that's one thing we've seen over the past week or so are some of these polls being done on the, the BCRA and showing that 
um, not very favorable. People just generally don't like this. Whether they understand it truly or not is a different question. Right. Um, but if, if it doesn't pass, if the senators don't get on board with it, what do you see as the next step? Interestingly, we saw McConnell float the idea of a bipartisan approach last Thursday at a luncheon, and you're starting to hear some Democrats come out and say that they are in favor of um, sitting down and trying to work through the solution. And really, I believe that would be the best solution for our nation. We really need to have both parties coming together to solve the problems that are associated with the ACA. And uh, by doing so, I know that the, the Democrats will push for Medicaid funding to remain as it is. I think that will be the major sticking point between the two parties is, is how to continue the Medicaid program. But if they can get beyond that, um, I think they all realize something has to be done with the individual market before it implodes. So we could see some collective efforts uh, getting us across uh, the finish line. Right. So lots of the debate that we're hearing about around healthcare reform relates to the individual market. Um, that's the market that Congress is really trying to solve through this legislation. To, to achieve that, the AHCA or the, the House's version of this bill included something called an invisible risk sharing program. And that seems to be interesting to a lot of people involved in this debate. Can you tell us what that is? Right. And, and let me take a step back. We have approached why on, on previous podcasts, why are we talking about the individual market when our audience is primarily in the group health market? And it's because, again, if you think of all of the coverage coverages in an ecosystem of sorts, um, if you find any portion of it that becomes imbalanced, it could uproot the rest of it. And so it's important even for the group market, for the individual market to be stable. If the individual market is not stable, what you could find is the carriers start shifting some of the cost over to the group market. You could find uh, providers shifting costs as well into the insured market for, for instead of uh, the government-funded market. And you could also um, find the government reaching into that market and having greater oversight. And we don't want them necessarily having greater oversight in the group market, so we'd like to halt that in the individual market as well. So with all of that said... This is why we're interested in the stability of the individual market. The Invisible Risk Sharing Program was introduced under the AHCA, and it had a funding of $15 billion over nine years. Significant amount of funding. Some say would, it's not enough. We'll get to that later. Um, but the idea with this funding is, is a mechanism to subsidize or otherwise reduce premiums in the individual market. And by doing that, you're going to create market stability by increasing uh, the availability of coverage to individuals. If you can lower the premium cost, it will become more affordable. You will attract some individuals into that market who may not have been attracted previously. Um, and then you, you create a broader participation, which in turn stabilizes the prices for all. So specifically, when we look at the um, invisible risk sharing program, it's, it's kind of, if you think of it, a behind the scenes reinsurance program. And it's for higher-risk individuals who are identified as high-risk by the carriers up front, meaning at the point of enrollment, a carrier will look at an individual and say, that person stays with me or that person is moved off into this uh, invisible risk-sharing program. It's invisible to the insured. It's obviously not invisible to the carrier. But it's considered a prospective reinsurance program rather than your traditional retrospective reinsurance program. Um, and just a, a real quick uh, definition, I guess, of sorts of a reinsurance program, it's really insurance for insurers. So uh, the carriers will take on a certain level of risk 
when they write coverage for a group, they may not want to keep that entire risk. So over a certain threshold, they want to have coverage themselves for the risk. So they will cede that those risks to another carrier, and that's called a reinsurer who insures insurance carriers. So it works by having insurers identify upfront, again, at the point of enrollment, which people they believe will incur large claims, and they will cede them, meaning they'll kind of hand them over to the high-risk room. They'll give them up, and they'll, they'll give um, them over to the high-risk pool, and that pool itself is funded by both public funds and private funds. So it's funded by insurers and by the government. And then the pool will pay for all the medical cost of that individual over a certain threshold. In the case of the program that was outlined in the AHCA, the threshold was $10,000. Um, now, something that's key to this program and key to how carers will decide whether or not they'll hand over or seed a person into that program is that when they do, they also seed over 90% of the premiums that are collected for that individual's coverage but yet they still have to retain that first tier of claims up to $10,000. So what this means is that insurers are going to start to uh, think very carefully about who they seed into the program and, in fact, have to reintroduce medical underwriting, um, which is something that they got away from with the ACA that prohibited medical underwriting. So um, one thing that's different about prospective reinsurance and retrospective reinsurance which is reinsurance that occurs after a claim is submitted, is that under prospective reinsurance, the program will not pay for individuals who unexpectedly incur large claims. So because that seeding of the risk is done up front, they've identified an individual. If you have a person who hasn't been identified for the program incur large claims, let's think of a young and healthy guy who goes out and gets in a car wreck and has um, significant medical costs those costs will not be seeded into the high-risk program. They will have to continue to be paid by that primary insurer. So it gets more complex than, the, than a retrospective reinsurance program that's just picking up claims over a certain threshold. Um, and it also requires, as I mentioned, medical underwriting, meaning that carers will now have to look at an individual when they enroll, look at their health risks, um, which is costly to do. Those types of underwriting programs actually incur, they're complex, they incur additional costs for the carriers, um, so it just adds a different element of complexity overall, not only for the government to, to do, but also for the carriers. Right. So definitely some complexities there for insurers to consider. Thank you for explaining the difference between prospective and retrospective reinsurance and generally explaining how this AHCA invisible risk sharing program will work. You mentioned that this was really intended to reduce premiums as part of the goal for putting in this program. How would it do that? Well, if you think of it as uh, when, they, when they hand these individuals over to the reinsurance program, they're seeding that risk. And when they seed that risk, they're limiting their own risk. And by limiting their own risk, they're able to reduce their prices that they're charging for that product. And they reduce it for the entire population. And so um, overall, um, how much it's reduced really will depend on how much the program is funded. And so whether $15 billion is, is sufficient funding to reduce the premiums enough for carriers' purposes is, is really a $64,000 question. Right. big part of the debate right now is that amount that is, should go into this program. It's an interesting idea, though, as you've explained it. Where did this idea originate? 
Well, it's actually been around um, health policy circles for um, several years. Over at least the past 20 years, we've seen several states that created these prospective reinsurance programs, but they were funded entirely by the carriers themselves. And the idea was that they wanted to bolster this small group market, which was um, having some instability at the time. But again, the problem was that there was no public funding. And so really, you just had a pooling of high risk among the carriers. So it really didn't change anything for them. Um, so being that we look back at all of those programs which failed, you wonder why are they reintroducing this idea today? And part of that reason is because there's now federal funding. So by adding in that additional public funding, uh, they think that could be the key to making these programs work. Um, it, what it doesn't do, though, is address, address the complexity that I mentioned. Right. So you mentioned states have tried this in the past. This might be a, a more workable idea now with this additional funding. Um, let's talk about two states where programs are in place, the first being Maine. Can you talk right. a little bit about Maine's program? Yes, and Maine's prospective reinsurance program is different than the older programs that were in other states that were trying to bolster the small group market. Um, Maine's program was started in 2011, and they were uh, adopting their prospective reinsurance program to um, to bolster their individual market, which was struggling at the time. And part of that struggle was prior to the ACA, they did have guarantee issue, they did have community rating, they, but they had no subsidy, they had no individual mandate, and they found their market uh, troubled. So the program was funded by a $4 per person per month tax on health insurers. And that was all health insurers. It included large group, small group, um, individual. It included fully insured, self-insured. And they were able to collect over $21 million for the program that was tied to just bolstering that individual market and subsidizing the cost for individuals so um, that were identified as high risk. Um, that $21 million subsidy, it was alleged, amounted to about 12 to 15% of the market's total premiums. So you can see that's significant compared to the amount of funding that they're talking about with 15 million is my understanding is it's quite a bit less in terms of total premium cost. Um, but for Maine, the way that it worked is uh, the carriers had to identify individuals as high risk and high risk was defined by the state. And it was defined by an individual having one of eight prior diagnoses that include things like congestive heart failure, HIV, kidney failure, uh, certain cancers, things like that. So the uh, by, once they identified them and they were a high risk, then the carriers could seed them to the main program. So how did this all work out for Maine? Well, Maine's uh, premiums actually were cut in half in the individual market. And so that's that's certainly that I think that's obviously what brought the attention of, of many other states. It brought the attention of the federal government to this program to see how did they do that because that's the overall goal of all of health reform is increase access and bring down premiums. Um, but the opponents claim that it's not really just due to this program that brought those premium costs down. It was also due to, to a couple of other things. First, covered benefits became much less generous. So before um, the program. Before the program was instituted, policies um, had lower coinsurance co and lower out-of-pocket maximums. And, and the policies that were seated in this program actually had 30% coinsurance and they increased their out-of-pocket maximums. So that in itself is obviously going to bring down the premium cost some. In addition, they went from an age band rating of 1.5 to 1 to 3 to 1. 
again, that's going to bring down the cost for certain individuals. Um, and that was only applied in the, for new policies, not uh, those policies that were grandfathered in. So in reality, um, when you looked at all of those things, and, and even the main reinsurance board agreed that the reduction in premiums was not just due to this program, it was due to multiple factors. But if they had to apply um, a portion of it just to the program, they said it, it really created about a 10% reduction in premium cost. So that's still significant, um, not 50%, but still 10% is, is something we'd all like to see in, in reduction in premium cost. Right. So it seems like maybe we have a, a fairly successful example here in Maine, maybe one that um, Republicans are looking at as they push this as an idea under health care reform. Tell us a little bit more about Alaska's program. That was the other state. Alaska's program is newer. We don't really have as much information, or I shouldn't say as, as much history with Alaska's program. They introduced it in June of 2016. Um, and they call it the Alaska Reinsurance Program, the ARP, as it's been identified. And they had success with it in 2016. And so the problem with their program is it is primarily funded through, um, again, only carriers. It is funded, they, they already had instituted a tax on all carriers of 2.7%, um, including um, PNC, not just health insurers. And so the funding for this program is... Um, from all carriers. They're, they're using appropriating about $55 million out of the total $64 million collected. So again, it's all carriers in the marketplace that are supporting this. And there's a sunset provision. So this is not going to continue. In order for this program to continue in Alaska, they are going to have to get federal funding. And so they're doing that via the Section 1332 waivers. Um, as you've started to hear more about the Section 1332 waivers, as a quick refresh, um, they, it is a waiver of ACA mandates and went into place in January 2017, which allows states to waive certain provisions of the ACA um, if, they, if they are able to show that they can maintain the same level of access and do other things that are, the ACA is intended to do. Um, and through this, um, they can have federal funding if they're able to show that there's actually a re reduction in the federal outlay towards like cost-sharing premiums, for example. Um, or cost-sharing payments, I should say. So when Alaska submitted their waiver application, they were able to cite that the program, the reinsurance program, reduced the individual market premium increases in 2017 from 42% to 7%. So in other words, instead of the premiums increasing 42% this year, they only increased 7% due to the reinsurance program. Wow, so that's a significant reduction right there. It is. So it's, again, showing real impact and on the stability of the market. Right. So it's something that, uh, you know, it has caught the eye of the federal government. It's caught the eye of many other states that are interested in innovation waivers as well. So it's certainly something that we'll be watching. We, we don't have word yet on whether they've received that ap an, an approval for their waiver application, um, but we will be watching it for as another means of providing stability to the individual market. Okay, great. So Suzanne, tying us back to where we started our podcast today with the uh, Senate and the House's versions and attempts to repeal and replace uh, the ACA. Well, this invisible risk sharing program, this idea of uh, method of treating high risk individuals, will that be a big part of the debate that we hear in the next, in the upcoming weeks? Well, certainly you will continue to hear. I don't know necessarily if it'll be this program, the invisible um, risk-sharing program that's prospective or some other reinsurance program or high-risk pools, 
but there will be some solution that's floated for high-risk individuals in the individual market. And so um, those, again, are, are, are the things that they're trying to solve, and you will continue to hear some type of funding from the federal government to bolster state markets. Right. Well, thank you very much. This was a very interesting topic and one that I'm sure not many on our podcast are that familiar with. So we all appreciate you educating us and sharing a bit more about uh, invisible high-risk pools. And as we like to say on the uh, podcast here, that's a wrap. All right. Thank you. We'll see you all next time. Thank you.